Chapter 4B of Native Races and the War by Josephine Elizabeth Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bill Mosley. All that the British government has ever contended for with President Kruger has been the fair and honorable observance of his engagement in respect of equal rights in Article 14 of the 1884 convention this he has persistently and doggedly refused while he has been using the millions of money he has wrung from the uthlanders to purchase the material for the war he has been long years preparing on such a colossal scale to drive the english out of those colonies in which they have given absolute equality to all it is this very equality which has upset his calculations by its leaving too few malcontents among the dutch population to make any general rising of them possible in natal or the cape on which rising kruger staked his hope of success in the struggle as for the transvaal boers the only part they have in the war is to fight for their independence which was never threatened until they invaded british territory and thus compelled the queen's government to defend it the only alternative left to england to refuse fighting would have been the ground that all war is wrong but as neither england nor any other nation has ever taken this christian ground there was in reality no alternative is it fair to stigmatize england as endeavoring to crush two small and weak nations because they have been so small in wisdom and weak in common sense as to become the tools of the daring and crafty autocrat who has decoyed both friend and foe into this war i am with high esteem thy friend john bellows it does not come within the scope of this treatise to deal with the case of the Uthlanders, but I have given the foregoing, because it is a clear and concise statement of that case, and because it expresses the strong conviction that I and many others have had from the first, that the worst enemy the Boers have is their own government. A government could scarcely be found less amenable to the principles of all just law, which exists alike for rulers and ruled these principles have been violated in the most reckless manner by president kruger and his immediate supporters the boers are suffering now and paying with their life-blood for the sins of their government pity and sympathy for them more especially for those among them who undoubtedly possess higher qualities than mere military prowess and physical courage are consistent with the strongest condemnation of the duplicity and lawlessness of their government the rev charles phillips who has been eleven years in south africa has given his opinion on the native question it was part of the constitution of the transvaal that no equality in church or state should be permitted between whites and blacks in cape colony on the contrary the constitution insisted that there should be no difference in consequence of color mr phillips enumerates the oppressive conditions under which the natives live in the transvaal 
they may not walk on the side paths or trade even as small hucksters or hold land until two years ago there was no marriage law for the blacks and that which was then passed was so bad a fee being demanded for every marriage with many other difficulties placed in the way of marriage that the missionaries endeavored to procure its abolition and to return to the old state of things no help is given towards the education of native children though the natives pay three per cent of the revenue the boers paying seven and a half and the utlanders eighty nine and a half the natives have therefore actually been helping to educate the boer children in eighteen ninety six says mr phillips quote, only six hundred and fifty pounds was granted to the schools of those who paid nine-tenths of the revenue sixty-three thousand pounds being spent upon the boer schools in other words the ulander child gets one s ten d the boer child eight pounds six s one d the ulander pays seven pounds per head for the education of every boer child and he has to provide in addition for the education of his own children the following extract is from a more general point of view but one which it is unphilosophical to overlook the christian age reproduces a communication from an american gentleman residing in the transvaal to the new york independent the boers mr dunn says quote, are as a race with of course individual exceptions an extraordinary instance of an arrested civilization the date of stoppage being somewhere about the conclusion of the seventeenth century but they have not even stood still at that point they have distinctly and dangerously degenerated even from the general standard of civilization existing when jan von rebeck hoisted the flag of the dutch east india company at cape point the great cardinal fact in connection with the utlander population is that owing to their numbers and activity they have brought in their train an influx of new wealth into the transvaal of truly colossal dimensions thus to sum up the distinctive and divergent characteristics of the two classes into which the population of the south african republic is divided the boers or old population are conservative ignorant stagnant and a minority the utlanders or new population are progressive full of enterprise energy and work and constitute a large majority of the total number of inhabitants it has so happened therefore that the boers as the ruling and dominant class have hopelessly failed to master or comprehend the new conditions with which they have been called upon to deal they have not as a body shown either capacity or desire to treat the new developments with even a remote appreciation of their inherited value and inevitable trend the boer has simply set his back against the floodgates apparently oblivious or indifferent to the fact that the hugely accumulating forces behind must one day burst every barrier he may choose to set up that is the whole transvaal situation in a sentence
it is necessary to point out further that this blind and dogged determination on the part of the boers to stop the clock affects not merely the transvaal it is vitally and perniciously affecting the whole of south africa but for the obstructiveness and obscurantism of the transvaal boers the rate of progress and development which would characterize the whole south african continent would be unparalleled in the history of any other country the reactionary policy of the transvaal is the one spoke in the wheel it must therefore be removed in the name of humanity and civilization monsieur elise recluse the great geographer unable and admittedly impartial historian wrote some years ago in his africa volume four page two fifteen quote, the patriotic boers of south africa still dream of the day when the two republics of the orange and the transvaal at first connected by a common customs union will be consolidated in a single african holland possibly even in a broader confederacy comprising all the africanders from the cape of good hope to the zambezi the boer families grouped in every town throughout south africa form collectively a single nationality despite the accident of political frontiers the question of the future union has already been frequently discussed by the delegates of the two conterminous republics but unless these visions can be realized during the present generation they are foredoomed to failure owing to the unprogressive character of the purely boer communities and to the rapid expansion of the english-speaking peoples by natural increase by direct immigration and by the assimilation of the boers themselves the future south african dominion can in any case never be an african holland whenever the present political divisions are merged in one state that state must sooner or later constitute an african england whether consolidated under the suzerainty of great britain or on the basis of absolute political autonomy but the internal elements of disorder and danger are too multifarious to allow the european inhabitants of austral africa for many generations to dispense with the protection of the english sceptre possessing for two centuries no book except the bible the south african dutch communities are fond of comparing their lot with that of the chosen people going forth like the jews in search of a promised land they never for a moment doubted that the native populations were especially created for their benefit they look on them as mere canaanites amorites and jebusites doomed beforehand to slavery or death they turned the land into a solitude breaking all political organization of the natives destroying all ties of common national feeling and tolerating them only in the capacity of apprentices another name for slaves in general the boers despise everything that does not contribute directly to the material prosperity of the family group despite their numerous treks they have contributed 
next to nothing to the scientific exploration of the land. Of all the white intruders, the Dutch Afrikanders show themselves, as a rule, most hostile to their own kinsmen, the Netherlanders of the mother country. At a distance, the two races have a certain fellow-feeling for each other, as fully attested by contemporary literature, but when brought close together, the memory of their common origin gives place to a strange sentiment of aversion. The Boer is extremely sensitive, hence he is irritated at the civilized Hollanders who smile at his rude African customs, and who reply with apparent ostentation in a pure language to the corrupt jargon spoken by the peasantry on the banks of the Vaal or Limpopo. No impartial student of recent South African history can fail, I think, to see that the results of Mr. Gladstone's policy in the retrocession of the Transvaal have been unhappy, however good the impulse which prompted his action. To his supporters at home, and to many of his admirers throughout Europe, his action stood for pure magnanimity and seemed a sort of prophetic installment of the Christian spirit which they hoped would pervade international politics in the coming age. To the Transvaal leaders it presented a wholly different aspect. It meant to them weakness and an acknowledgment of defeat. Now let us go on, they felt, and press towards our goal, i.e. the expulsion of the British from South Africa. The attitude and conduct of the Transvaal delegates who came to London in 1883 and of their chiefs and supporters throws much light on this effect produced by the act of Mr. Gladstone. There can be no doubt that the desire to supplant British by Dutch supremacy has existed for a long time. President Kruger puts back the origin of the opposition of the two races to a very distant date. In 1881 he said, quote, In the cession of the Cape of Good Hope by the King of Holland to England lies the root out of which subsequent events and our present struggle have grown. Quote. The Dutch believe themselves, and not without reason, capable of great things. They are moved by an ambition to seize the power they believed, and the retrocession fostered that belief, was falling from England's feeble and vacillating grasp. Long before the present trouble, says a member of the British Parliament well acquainted with South African affairs, quote, I visited every town in South Africa of any importance and was brought into close contact with every class of the population wherever one went one heard this ambition voiced, either advocated or deprecated, but never denied. It dates back some forty or fifty years. End quote. Footnote 15 Speech of Mr. Drake, Member of Parliament, at Derby, December 1899 the first reference to it is in a dispatch of Governor Sir George Grey in 1858, and it is to be found more definitely in the speeches of President Burgers in the Transvaal Rod 
1877 before the annexation, and in his Apologia, published after the annexation. The movement continued under the administration of Sir Bartle Frere, who wrote in a dispatch published in Blue Book in 1879, quote, The anti-English opposition are sedulously courting the loyal Dutch party, a great majority of the Cape Dutch, in order to swell the already considerable minority who are disloyal to the English crown here and in the Transvaal. Mr. Theodore Schreiner, the brother of the Cape Premier, in a letter to the Cape Times, November 1899, described a conversation he had some seventeen years ago with Mr. Wrights, then a judge, afterwards President of the Orange Free State, and now State Secretary of the Transvaal, in which Mr. Wrights admitted that it was his object to overthrow the British power and expel the British flag from South Africa. Mr. Schreiner adds, quote, During the seventeen years that have elapsed, I have watched the propaganda for the overthrow of British power in South Africa being ceaselessly spread by every possible means, the press, the pulpit, the platform, the schools, the colleges, the legislature, and it has culminated in the present war of which Mr. Wrights and his co-workers are the origin and the cause. End quote. The retrocession of the Transvaal, 1881, gave a strong impulse to this movement and encouraged President Kruger in his persistent efforts since that date to foster it. A friend of the late General Jobert, in a letter which I have read, wrote of Mr. Kruger as, quote, the man who, for more than twenty years past, has persistently labored to drive in the wedge between the two races. It has been his deliberate policy throughout, End quote. I always wish that I could separate the memory of that truly great man, Mr. Gladstone, from this act of his administration. Few people cherish his memory with more affectionate admiration than I do. Independently of his great intellect, his eloquence, and his fidelity in following to its last consequences, a conviction which had taken possession of him, I revered him because he seemed, like King Saul, to stand a head and shoulders above all his fellows, not like King Saul in physical, but in moral stature. Pure, honorable, and strong in character and principles, a sincere Christian, he attracted and deserved the affection and loyalty of all to whom purity and honor are dear. I may add that I may speak of him in a measure also as a personal friend of our family. I have memories of delightful intercourse with him at Oxford when he represented that constituency, and later in other places and at other times. I recall, however, an occasion in which a chill of astonishment and regret fell upon me and my husband, politically one of his supporters. 
in hearing a pronouncement from him on a subject which to us was vital and had been pressing heavily on our hearts i allude to a great speech which mr gladstone made in liverpool during the last period of the civil war in america the abolitionist war our friend spoke with his accustomed fiery eloquence wholly in favor of the spirit and aims of the combatants of the southern states speaking of their struggle as one on behalf of liberty and independence and wishing them success not one word to indicate that the question which like burning lava in the heart of a volcano was causing that terrible upheaval in america had found any place in that great man's mind or had even cast its shadow before in his thoughts it appeared as though he had not even taken in the fact of the existence of those four millions of slaves the uneasy clanking of whose chains had long foreboded the approach of the avenging hand of the deliverer this obscured perception of the question was that of a great part if not of the majority of the press of that day and of most persons of the privileged class but that he a trusted leader of so many should be suffering from such an imperfection of mental vision was to us an astonishment and sorrow as we left that crowded hall my companion and i we looked at each other in silent amazement and for a long time we found no words as i look back now there seems in this incident some explanation of mr gladstone's total oblivion of the interests of our loyal native subjects of the transvaal at the time when he handed them over to masters whose policy towards them was well known these poor natives had appealed to the british government had trusted it and were deceived by it i recollect that mr gladstone himself confessed with much humility it seemed to us in a pamphlet written many years after the american war that it had been his misfortune on several occasions quote, not to have perceived the reality and importance of a question until it was at the door End quote. this was very true his noble enthusiasm for some good and vital cause so engrossed him at times that the humble knocking at the door of some other perhaps equally vital question was not heard by him the knocking necessarily became louder and louder till at last the door was opened but then it may have been too late for him to take the part in it which should have been his End of chapter 4. Recording by Bill Mosley, Lano County, Texas, USA.